In this episode of Unbelievably True Crimes, we look at a small town in Mojave County, Arizona, where a fundamentalist religious leader who considers himself a prophet drives two girls to make a daring escape in an attempt to save their own lives, and hopefully many more. This is Unbelievably True Crimes. I turned around, he had this look on his face like he was like, you know, I, I just remember his look like he was, he just kind of looked at me, he's like, um, we gotta go on a drive. He went around to all the neighbors and told them if they saw me trying to escape, you know, trying to get away, I was crazy. Hello ladies, hello ladies. I trust you're all being Zion increasingly. Okay, the Lord showed me he's very pleased with this group of 12 ladies willing to do whatever you're called on to do. Welcome back to Unbelievably True Crimes, episode four. Number four. Welcome back. Good I'm morning. Good Good morning good or afternoon. afternoon. Good night. <laughs> Sleep tight. I'm Ty. And my wife, Adri, is with me. Hello, my name's Adri. So, Unbelievably True Crimes, welcome back. What are we? We are a crime podcast in which we discuss crime cases that have taken place within this crazy world of ours. This podcast is not always true crime, however. Sometimes there are cases that are not true at all, believe it or not. Sometimes the cases are completely made up and fabricated by me, yours truly. Like you. Adri will not have any idea throughout the episode whether or not the crime we are discussing is true or false. Adri is hearing these crimes in real time. She is hearing it all for the very first time every single episode, just like you. At the end of each episode, you and Adri will have to consider all of the information you learned throughout this episode to decide whether or not the crime was made up, true, fabricated, false, BS, if you will. <laughs> It's up to you to decide and at the very me, end. Let me throw this in there. This is harder than it seems. And maybe maybe all of you guys have got this correct. I have gotten every single one wrong so far. You're zero for three. Zero for three. You're not doing too great. Unbelievably True Crimes aims to bring you interesting and draw drop and jaw dropping stories every Monday. It's my promise to you that regardless of whether or not I make up the crime, or whether it is true, I will have you wanting more and more. Ah, I want more. I want more as well. <laughs> Hang tight till the very end of this episode to discover whether or not this crime was true or false. And don't look it up as we go along, because that will spoil it all. You'll have a much more enjoyable experience if you just sit back wherever you are in the bathtub, in your car, standing up, <laughs> mowing the lawn, whatever you want. Just take every piece of information as it's presented to you. Before we dive into this story, just like last episode, um, there is some strong content here that involves children. So obviously, listener discretion is advised. I would not listen to this episode around Anyone younger than 13 years old, possibly even 14 years old. But you can listen to it around whoever you want. That's you, you be the adult here. I'm not telling you what to do. Again, listener discretion is advised. Now, without further ado, let's begin. 
Our case study begins in a very small town in Mojave County, Arizona, called Colorado City. According to the census in 2010, it was credited with a population of just 4,821 people. Very small. Yeah, that's small. Formerly known as Short Creek or the Short Creek Community, the town was founded in 1913. And according to Wikipedia, the town was founded by a group from Salt Lake City that called themselves the Council of Friends. Now, the Council of Friends was a breakaway group from the Church of Latter-day Saints. And I'm assuming they were Mormons then. Yes, you'd be correct in that assumption because the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the Mormon church. So yes, you're absolutely right. <sighs> okay. You're right about, you may be zero for three, but you are right I about that. I got this, okay. So yes, they were, they were practicing fundamentalist Mormons, and we'll get more into that. So this group, the Council of Friends, desired a remote location far away where they could practice plural marriage because in 1890, plural marriage was no longer practiced by the Church of Latter-day Saints. And what is plural marriage? So plural marriage is essentially another word for polygamy. So the men were allowed to have more than one wife, and this was practiced publicly from the years 1852 to 1890. And in between 20 and 30% of the families were polygamous families. After the death of Joseph W. Musser, who was a Mormon fundamentalist leader, the Council of Friends split in two. One group decided to call themselves the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, quite the mouthful, while the other group called themselves Apostolic United Brethren. Now, the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they stayed in Short Creek, a.k.a. Colorado City, as it would later be known, while the Apostolic United Brethren, they relocated to Bluffdale, Utah. And it was at this time that the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or FLDS for short, changed the town name to Colorado City. And just, just before we really dive into this, we will be calling them the FLDS throughout the rest of the story. Because okay. that's the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints <laughs> is just a mouthful. So where in Arizona is this place? Right, so... Are you talking Short Creek? Yes. So I, I probably should have mentioned that. So if you're looking at a map, you'll notice that the town of Colorado City is on the northern border of Arizona. And the town is actually kind of split by that Utah-Arizona border. On the Utah side of the border, it's called Hilldale, while the Arizona side of the border is Colorado City. We're not focusing on Hilldale at all, so get that out of your head. We're focusing on Colorado City here. That's where our crimes occurred. Now, it's important to note that in January of 2004, an FLDS leader by the name of Warren Jeffs made 20 men, including the mayor of Colorado City, leave the town forever. And after these 20 men were expelled from the town, Warren Jeffs proceeded to give their wives and children away to other men who resided within the town of Colorado City. Wow. Can he do that? I mean, why would he do that? Legally, I don't think he can do that, but that sure didn't stop him. And as far as why, I guess it depends on who you ask. If if you ask the men that were forced to leave why they were expelled, they would tell you that it was because they had disagreed with Warren Jeffs about some things and he went on a power trip and kicked them out. But if you ask Warren Jeffs, the leader of the FLDS at that time, why he expelled these 20 men, He'll tell you that he was just following the orders that God had given him directly 
he considered himself a prophet, and many in the town also considered him a prophet. But on a side note, Warren Jeffs was placed on the FBI's 10 most wanted list and subsequently arrested on August 28, 2006. It's also stated in the A&E documentary on Warren Jeffs, The Prophet of Evil, he's estimated to have around 78 wives and more than 50 children. Wow. I'm curious, why was he on the FBI's 10 most wanted list? So according to the FBI website itself, on his actual wanted posting, For that time, it states that he was wanted for two counts of sexual conduct with a minor, one count of conspiracy to commit sexual conduct with a minor, and unlawful flight to avoid arrest. Another interesting fact before we move on is that during my research, and according to wikipedia.com, between the years of 2001 and 2006, Warren Jeffs had expelled approximately 400 young men in total from Colorado City. These men were all said to have been expelled for reasons such as disobeying Warren Jeff's orders as well as dating other women within the community without his approval. Because of the young age of these men, a lot of them unfortunately wound up homeless in nearby towns as a result. Wow, so I take it we're focusing on Warren Jeff's today. No, today we'll be looking at a couple of young females. One called Andrea Smith, who at the time was about 18 years of age around the time frame when these crimes began unfolding in 2008. And the other female is called Beth Smith, and she was 24 years old around this time. Now, Andrea Smith was born on May 22, 1988. Her father was Matthew Smith, and her mother was called Mary Ann Smith. When Andrea Smith was born on this day, her father Matthew was 20 years old, and her mother, Mary Ann, was 14. Andrea was born in Colorado City, Arizona. 14 years old, she gave birth. Holy. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very, very young. I don't even remember what I was doing at 14, but I yeah, definitely wasn't doing the thing that makes babies. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was crazy. But that was considered to be completely normal within the community in Colorado City. And as this case study unfolds, you'll learn more about this FLDS group. So Matthew Smith, Marianne's husband and the father to Andrea Smith, was a devout Mormon, as was his wife, Marianne. Matthew and Marianne were married one year prior to Andrea being born. Marianne and Matthew met as part of an arranged marriage put together by the church in 1987. Marianne had always lived in Colorado City on account of her parents being devout members of the FLDS as well. Now, Matthew Smith had relocated from Las Vegas around age 16 after hearing about the FLDS group from an unknown source. I was unable to find that during the course of my research. But Matthew Smith was a sophomore in high school at Palo Verde High School in Las Vegas where he dropped out shortly after hearing about Colorado City and the FLDS group. It was from this point forward that his life would change forever as he embarked on a very different kind of life as a member of the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or FLDS. Growing up and throughout his schooling, Matthew Smith was reportedly quite a troublemaker. His teacher stated that he was a bully, and he would often bully females. He was constantly in and out of detention for doing things such as pushing female classmates down in the hallway, spitting on females in passing, and also calling them names. He had also reportedly slashed the tires on one female's vehicle 
on four different occasions, but he never faced any repercussions at all from these crimes during his time as a juvenile. In an interview conducted in 2013 with Matthew's mother, Janae Smith, she told MaroonMag.com that Matthew Smith had not been raised in a religious household at all. Janae also stated that Matthew's father, Raymond, was very militaristic in his parenting style with Matthew. Matthew Smith was also an only child. He had no siblings at all. The interviewer for MaroonMag.com concludes the interview with Janae Smith by asking her why she believed Matthew had dropped out of school his sophomore year and left his home to go and practice a religion that he knew nothing about in a place that he'd never been, full of people he didn't even know. And Janae responded with, why don't you go ahead and read this? I'm not sure that I'll ever quite understand why he did what he did. I talked with Matthew so many times before what happened to him, and he gave me reasons, but I guess he never had a good one. I know he had felt as though he was not accepted at school, and sometimes felt as though he was misunderstood by his father, but I'll just never understand it. I'll never understand it. Andrea's mother, Marianne, as I stated earlier, had always lived within the small town of Colorado City, Arizona. And in an interview conducted by the Phoenix Sun newspaper in 2011, she stated that up until 2007, she had never known anything but Colorado City. She stated that she had never even left the town, and to her knowledge, her mother and father had also never left the town. When Andrea Smith was born on May 22, 1988, Marianne was one of four wives that Matthew had. Marianne had always known this polygamous lifestyle, so nothing was strange to her. This was all she had never known. During Andrea's early years, she was reportedly very active within the church, and she loved her father, Matthew, very much. It's stated that at a very young age, Andrea had been a witness to her father, Matthew, beating her mother on several occasions. Due to the teachings of the FLDS, she knew that she could never tell anyone because to disobey your father was a very sinful thing to do in the eyes of the church and God himself. On one occasion, she had found her mother, Marianne, crying in one of the bedrooms of their home, and she asked her what was wrong, and Marianne stated, Go ahead and read this. Nothing is wrong, sweetheart. Your father and I were just talking. Everything is quite all right, and there's nothing to worry about. Shortly after this, there was another incident that Andrea had been a witness to in which her father had pushed her mother down the stairs and began screaming at her for being clumsy. Now, according to a story published to the Phoenix Sun newspaper, Andrea ran down the stairs to her mother's aid and grabbed her father's arm, at which point he proceeded to beat Andrea to the point where she had to go to the town clinic to have her injuries assessed by a medical professional. And after a series of x-rays, it was determined that she had suffered a broken wrist, a broken collarbone, and a broken nose. She also received 16 stitches across her forehead as a result of the assault. Good Lord. Please tell me Matthew gets arrested now. No. No, unfortunately, because Colorado City was strictly inhabited by members of the FLDS, the incident was considered to be quote, completely normal, and it was chalked up as just being a case of Andrea had disrespected her father's commands. So essentially, yeah, he, he completely got away with it. During Andrea's recovery process, another one of her father's wives, Beth Smith, 
who's our other focus in this story, had come to visit her and gave her a bowl of leftover homemade ice cream. Now it should be noted that Beth was only six years older than Andrea, who at this time was 10 years old. This kick-started a very lengthy friendship between Andrea and Beth, which would blossom over the years as they became closer. So I have a question. Did all of Matthew's wives and children live in that same house? So Matthew primarily resided in a house with one of his wives called Brienne. Some of the families resided in the same living quarters, but in Andrea's home, it was only her mother and her, and on occasion, Matthew. The house where they resided was a two-bedroom house next to the main residence where Matthew stayed with Brienne. So where did Beth live at? Beth actually lived in the primary residence with Brienne, Matthew, and three of the children from that marriage. Kind of gets confusing, doesn't it? Extremely. I'm trying to keep up here. Lots of female names to follow. So I'll make it a little easier for you and the listeners. So from this point forward, the only female names you really need to focus on are Andrea Smith, Marianne Smith, and Beth Smith. Cool. Yes, you're welcome. (laughs) So throughout Andrea's recovery, it was stated that Beth was more attentive to Andrea than her own mother, Marianne, was. It's also stated that at one point, Marianne walked into the room where Andrea was sleeping and Beth was by Andrea's bedside reading her a story from a book she had. This discovery, made by Marianne, resulted in her telling Beth that she needed to get out of their home and she was no longer welcome back. Later on, when speaking with her mother, Andrea asked Marianne why she had gotten so angry with Beth and Marianne stated that she had no place in their home. Is it a normal thing for the other wives in polygamous marriages to completely shun the wives and the children of their husband's other marriages? So throughout my research, I learned that it was actually quite the opposite. And there's a lot of pictures of polygamous marriages in which all the families of the one man are all in a group smiling. They were all one big happy family, according to the pictures and interviews. Again, this was the norm for the followers of the FLDS. This was all that they had ever known and was how they were instructed by God and the quote-unquote prophets to live their lives. So why do you think Marianne was so against having Beth there for Andrea at such a low point in Andrea's life then? You know, I wondered the same thing myself when I got to this point, and the answer is coming. I'll tell you that. So in the year 2000, Andrea was out in the backyard garden of their home when she heard screaming coming from the house next to theirs. A.K.A. where Matthew, Beth, Brienne, and the other kids lived. Exactly. So after hearing this scream, Andrea went up to one of the back windows of the, of the house next door, looked through and observed her father standing over Beth screaming at her. Now Beth, while on her back, was screaming back at him. Andrea wasn't able to make out exactly what the argument was, but at one point she saw Matthew quickly bend down, scream, and clutch his left leg around the calf area. And it was at this point when Beth stood up and ran upstairs where a door could then be heard slamming shut. It wasn't until years later when Andrea found out exactly what had happened that day between Beth and her father. In the year 2002... Warren Jeffs, who we discussed at length in the beginning, became the new president of the FLDS after his father, Rulon Jeffs, died. Andrea had reportedly always enjoyed being around Warren Jeffs, who was very, very, very 
present throughout their community in Colorado City, Arizona. He was always very nurturing toward the females and was a very avid family man. <laughs> Obviously, he's got yeah. <laughs> close to 80 wives, if not more. So shortly after becoming the president of FLDS, Warren Jeffs hired Matthew Smith to be his bodyguard. Now, Andrea was apparently quite perplexed with why Warren Jeffs had hired her father to be his bodyguard. And she had actually asked Matthew why Warren even needed a bodyguard if he was so well-liked within the community. And when she asked her father this question, Matthew reportedly told her, I want you to read this quote. Go ahead. Mr. Jeffs is a very important person, and sometimes very important people such as him need protection from outside people who might want to hurt him. Mr. Jeffs is our prophet. When you pray to God at night, Mr. Jeffs can hear those prayers, and when God decides to answer those prayers, he answers them through Mr. Jeffs. So at this point in time, Matthew Smith started spending more and more time away from home and more time with Warren Jeffs as his bodyguard. When Matthew was home, he began exhibiting more strange behavior. He would do things like seclude himself to a room behind a closed door, he would skip meals, and would have more frequent outbursts of rage. And unfortunately, Andrea and Marianne were the primary targets during these outbursts. In late 2003, Warren Jeffs and his many wives had Beth, Marianne, Andrea, and many of the children over for dinner in his 41-bedroom home in Colorado City. Wow. Yes. This was also the first incident of many to follow between Andrea, Matthew, and Warren Jeffs. Incidents? What do you mean? You'll find out, my dear wife. <laughs> You'll find out. So at some point throughout the dinner, Warren and Matthew had went somewhere else within Warren's large house. And sometime later, Matthew had come back and gotten Andrea's attention and told her that she needed to come with him. Andrea was then escorted by her father into an upstairs office area where she entered and saw Warren Jeffs. Matthew then reportedly ushered her into the office where Warren then began speaking to her and telling her that she had always been one of his favorite girls within the community and how she does such a good job of glorifying God and doing her womanly duties as a daughter. Warren then began speaking to her about how she's become such a great role model for the other younger girls and how he sees so much in her ability to be a mother one day. He then asks her if she wants to be a mother and she tells him that she'd like to someday and then he asks her if she wants to be a wife and again she tells him that she'd like to someday. I don't know if I like where this is going. How old is Andrea at this point? So at this point, uh, the year is late 2003, so that would make her 15 years old at this point. So this is about the same age when her mother became a wife, right? Yes. So Marianne was, I mean, remember, she was 14 yeah. when she got married and and when, when she yeah. gave birth uh -huh, to Andrea. So Andrea is older than the age at which Marianne was made a bride to Matthew. Well, I'm, I'm going to assume that that is probably what's about to happen here. So as the conversation progresses between Andrea and Warren Jeffs, he gets up from his chair, gets on his knees and looks up at Andrea and tells her that it's time for her to meet her husband. 
The door then reportedly opened, and a tall man with brown hair stepped into the room and following was Matthew. It's at this point when Andrea recognized the man to be her half-brother, Michael Smith. Her half-brother. Are you serious? Completely serious. And guess who Michael's mother is? Beth. Beth Smith. So Michael, who was 18 years old at this point, is the son of Matthew and Beth Smith. Wow. Yep, so after explaining to Michael and Andrea that they will soon be wed, he tells them that they first must go on a little trip so that the marriage can be finalized. And a couple of days later, Andrea, Matthew, and Marianne get into their vehicle and drive to a place called Caliente Hot Springs Motel in Nevada. And upon their arrival, Michael, a few of Michael's siblings, and Warren Jeffs arrive at the motel. And it's at this time when a room is purchased, a key labeled room number 15 is provided to Warren Jeffs, and the group then squeeze into this small double bed motel room. So they got married in a motel room. Yes. Believe it or not, lots of these arranged marriages had reportedly taken place within this very room, room number 15 of the Caliente Hot Springs Motel in Nevada. Wow. So where is Caliente, Nevada exactly? Caliente, Nevada is 150 miles north of Las Vegas where Matthew left at age 16. I'll remind you. Yeah, that's right. I was just going back through my notes. That's, yep. So the ceremony begins, and it's described as being a very dark event. Dark. Dark. It's described as almost being like a funeral. And who's describing it as this? That will be revealed later. You'll have to be patient. But it's described by this person as a very dark place. The guy couldn't see a thing. (laughs) (laughs) Almost like a place where you'd hold a funeral. The whole thing just seemed like some sort of facade. Quote, I felt as though my lungs were struggling to breathe. I felt like nothing. Michael and Andrea are then pronounced husband and wife by Warren Jeffs, the prophet himself. He then instructs Michael to kiss his bride, and it's at this moment when Michael leans in to kiss Andrea and does just that. According to the Phoenix Sun newspaper, a close source who attended the wedding that night stated that Beth Smith was softly crying throughout the ceremony and at one point actually got up and exited the motel room. She stayed outside for the remainder of the ceremony. A year into their marriage, Andrea and Michael began having issues, and at one point Beth reportedly tried convincing Andrea to leave Michael because Beth believed that Andrea deserved much better. Now, it's stated that Matthew Smith and Warren Jeffs heard about this advisement given to Andrea from Beth. And as a result, they attempted to banish Beth from Colorado City, but this could never be confirmed. I never found a source that confirmed this. It was just a rumor. And Beth remained residing with Matthew in the house next to Andrea and Marianne's in Colorado City. So obviously she was not successfully banished because she continued to live there. In January of 2004, Warren Jeffs expelled a group of 20 men from Colorado City. Of these 20 men were the mayor of Colorado City, Arizona, and Michael Smith, Andrea's husband. So what you're telling me is that Warren Jeffs married Michael and Andrea, and then a year later removes him from the city. Yes. 
That's exactly correct. That doesn't make any sense. I thought that was... <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't. Not a lot of this makes sense. But I think a lot can be said for the state of Warren Jeff's mental state during this time because of that decision. Like it just shows what type of person he really was. He just seemed like he'd go on these power trips and, you know, he called himself the prophet and these people within the FLDS in Colorado City, Arizona believe that. And yeah, it, not, not a lot of it <laughs> makes sense. So at this time, Michael and 19 other men, including the mayor, were ousted from the town. At this point, as I stated in the beginning, Warren Jeffs begins essentially giving these wives and children to various other men throughout the community of the FLDS. Okay, and so then what happens? Do they marry somebody else? That's, yeah, that's exactly what happens. The whole process is described as being like an auction for cattle, believe it or not. And the source close to the Phoenix Sun newspaper states that the remaining wives and children were ushered into the temple in town and given to men who bid for the wives. And when the wives were sold to these men, the children went with their mothers. As a result of this auction, Andrea was sold to a man called Philip Pierce. Philip Pierce was apparently infamous throughout the community for being a right-hand man to Warren Jess. And he knew the inner workings of the community and was present throughout all of Warren Jeff's endeavors. So what happens now? So at this point, Andrea is kind of starting to come to the realization that the life she's living within this community is flawed. She's coming to terms that what she's experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis is not normal at all. She starts questioning everything at this point and begins quote-unquote disobeying her new husband now, one may ask, why would she start questioning these norms of a society that she's known her entire life? Like, how would she know what's normal from what's not? She I mean, this is Andrea's entire life. It's all she's ever known. She's always lived in Colorado City. The answer is a close friend of hers, Beth Smith, her father's second wife. Wouldn't this be Beth's normal too, though? And that's exactly what I asked myself until I learned that Beth Smith, or Beth Summers, which is her maiden name, had come to Colorado City around the age of 14 with her uncle Thomas. Beth had apparently not always resided within the confines of Colorado City, Arizona. Beth Summers, or Beth Smith, as she would soon come to be known, came from a small town outside of Salt Lake City, Utah. Beth Summers had relocated to Colorado City after her uncle decided to move there. Now, she'd always grown up in a Mormon household after her mother and father passed away. But to answer your question, no. She had not always lived such an extreme lifestyle under the ways of the FLDS. So, shortly after Beth arrived in Colorado City, she was arranged to marry Matthew Smith. She was his second wife. When she learned of this, she began to question the whole ideology of what they were teaching and praising in Colorado City. Two years after her arrival in Colorado City, and two years after her marriage to Matthew, Beth heard that one of Matthew's daughters, Andrea, whom she's never met at this point, had suffered extensive injuries after standing up to Matthew. Beth decided to visit her next door, and this was the first time that Beth and Andrea had ever met. It was at this point in Beth's life when she began telling Andrea about a life outside of Colorado City, Arizona. These meetings would continue to take place 
for the next six years. So from the point where Matthew put Andrea in the hospital with all of those broken bones, Beth was teaching her about the outside world? Yes. Wow. Right? So you can imagine what it was like for Andrea to hear these things. And keep in mind, she was 10 years old. That She was only 10 when she her father beat her. And I'm sure it was insane for her to think of a life where her every move wasn't controlled by men. It was a complete game changer. On June 26th of 2006, Beth and Andrea snuck out of their respective homes and finalized a plan in which they'd been planning for years. They decided that they were going to flee the town of Colorado City in the middle of the night and escape to the nearby town of Hurricane, Utah. Upon their arrival into Utah, they were going to reveal the everyday lives that they had lived up to that point. They also planned to detail the actions exhibited by Warren Jeffs, and they believed deep down that what he was doing was manipulative and conniving in the very least. Beth also convinced Andrea that what Warren was facilitating was illegal and could send him to prison. Ever since her arranged marriage to her half-brother Michael, Andrea had developed a strong animosity toward Warren Jeffs ever since he married them. Coupled with what she had learned from Beth, she was completely on board with what Beth wanted to do. So she agreed to the plan that was finalized that night. And the next day, Beth and Andrea were going to flee and hope for a better life. So I can only imagine that things did not go to plan. Things did not go according to plan. You're right. The following night at approximately 1 a.m., Beth and Andrea met in their prearranged spot on the north end of Colorado City. Beth, with the keys in hand to a pickup belonging to Matthew Smith, which was parked at the town temple, climbed into the driver's seat of the vehicle. Andrea quickly followed and the two embarked on the 25-minute drive to the town of Hurricane. Approximately five minutes into their drive, they were stopped by a police officer called Reginald Williams of the Mojave County Sheriff's Office. And after learning of the plan devised by Beth and Andrea, they were then escorted back to the police car and sat in the back seat and returned to Colorado City. Upon their arrival in Colorado City, Officer Williams awoke Warren Jeffs and Matthew Smith and advised them of the situation. They were then released from the police custody. What? How? How does that make any sense? So Officer Williams, we're jumping a little bit ahead here, but Officer Williams during the trial against Warren Jeffs in 2007 was also found guilty as an accomplice to Warren Jeff's criminal enterprises. So so the cop was working for him. Unfortunately, yes. So the following month was long and brutal for both Andrea and Beth alike. They were treated much like slaves and beaten numerous times for their quote-unquote crimes within the community. What they did was seen as the ultimate sin. They were seen as scum within the community simply for trying to save themselves and hopefully others as a result of their fleeing, but unfortunately it didn't work out. For quite some time, Beth and Andrea were not allowed to see one another. They were forbidden to leave their rooms except to eat or use the restroom when their husbands allowed it. This went on for some time, until one night in August of 2006. On this night, Andrea was reportedly awoken by a male screaming next door. At this point, Andrea went to her locked window, which is locked from the outside, and began looking for the source of the noise. 
She then observed a light shining on the backyard of the house next door, Beth's house. She heard yelling following the initial scream, and it's at this point when she realizes that the voices she can hear is her father's voice and Beth's voice. In addition to the voices screaming, she can also hear things being thrown around and items within the home being broken. Andrea then hears Beth scream. I want you to really give it your all on this. (laughs) Go ahead. I am so sick of you hitting me. And then what follows is silence. Andrea begins trying to open the locked window, but she's not able to do so quietly. Shortly after coming to the conclusion that she was going to have to break the window to get out, she hears a knock on the front door. And what follows is a series of voices, one of the voices being her mother's, Marianne. Andrea then hears Marianne start sobbing, and then she hears a knock at her locked bedroom door. Her bedroom door was also locked from the outside, I take it. Yes, so at this point, her door opens and Andrea sees Beth standing there in a nightgown. Beth begins telling Andrea that she needs to grab a couple of clothing items because they're leaving. Andrea then reminds Beth that they can't leave because they'll be punished. Beth then begins packing various items throughout Andrea's room and they walk down the stairs where Marianne is lying on the ground crying near the front door. And it's at this point when Beth tries pulling Marianne to her feet and pleading with her to come with them, but Marianne doesn't move, and she just continues crying. Beth then pulls Andrea out of the house by her arm, and the two reportedly got into the same vehicle they'd gotten into less than two months prior in their grand plan to escape Colorado City, Arizona. But this time is different. At approximately 0525 hours on August 30th, 2006, Beth and Andrea Smith arrive in Las Vegas, Nevada at the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, where they spend the next nine hours detailing the life they'd been forced to live in Colorado City, Arizona under Warren Jeffs, the prophet of FLDS. Within the interview, Beth Smith also details how she was forced to kill Matthew Smith, her husband of seven years after he had attacked her for trying to go outside for a breath of fresh air. Upon Matthew striking her, Beth stated that she grabbed a kitchen knife from the drawer and stabbed him two times until the grasp from his hand let go of her arm. At some point during the beginning stages of the interview, Detective Rudd of the Federal Bureau of Investigations, Las Vegas Field Office, was summoned at which point he took over the interview with his partner, Detective Sheila Mitchell. Beth and Andrea advised both detectives that they needed to arrest Warren Jeffs for his sickening behavior before he hurt more women. It was at this point when Detective Mitchell advised both females that Warren Jeffs had been arrested less than 12 hours earlier on a routine traffic stop on Interstate 15, north of Las Vegas, Nevada. Concluding the separate interviews of Beth and Andrea Smith, Beth was then placed under arrest for suspicion of murder until authorities were able to investigate the reported death of Matthew Smith, Beth's husband. All right, wait. So Beth was arrested for defending herself? Well, this is this is how you got to think about it. So if they're interviewing her and she admits to killing her husband, but that's the only story they have at that point, they have to place her on some sort of investigative detention until the scene of the death and the death itself is investigated. If they just let her go and it turns out that her side of the story, which is the only side they've got at this point, is false then they've got to track her down. It's just better to be safe than sorry. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, that makes sense. So the FBI goes to Colorado City, Arizona and begins investigating the claims made by Beth and Andrea Smith. During their investigation, they go to Beth's home, right next door to Andrea's home, and they find the body of Matthew Smith lying in a pool of blood. Aren't there kids in his other wife home that would have seen his body prior to them getting there? Yes, and it's, you know, it's later learned that Brianne had attempted to call Warren Jeffs to advise him of her discovery, but at this time, Warren Jeffs had been arrested, so he wasn't around a phone. So Brianne apparently didn't know what to do, so she just left Matthew's body there, and she and the kids went to Marianne's house next door for the time being. So at this point, an autopsy is then ordered by the Arizona Department of Justice, and during the autopsy, it's determined that Matthew Smith was stabbed 14 times with a single-blade kitchen knife. Yikes! So, way more than what she told them. Yeah, way more than just the two. So, because of this pretty, you know, large inconsistency in Beth's narrative, she's arrested for the homicide of Matthew Smith. A separate investigation is headed by the Texas Department of Justice for the crimes committed by Warren Jeffs, and this trial begins in September of 2007. The trial against Beth Smith versus the Arizona Department of Justice begins shortly before the Warren Jeffs trial in May of 2007. Prior to this taking place, Andrea is placed in a safe house somewhere in the state of Arizona. In the trial for the homicide of Matthew Smith in May of 2007, of those testifying for the defense is Andrea Smith, Marianne Smith, Beth Smith, and several siblings and children Beth Smith had. During the trial and the testimony provided by Andrea Smith, she outlined years of sexual, physical, and mental abuse that her father, Matthew Smith, put her through. She also detailed a point in which her father was setting up arrangements in which Warren Jeffs would engage Andrea in unwelcome sexual encounters. At one point, the defense attorney, Amy Friedline, asked Andrea about the abuse which resulted in her four-month stay in the clinic within the town of Colorado City, Arizona, when she was 10 years old. At this point, Andrea is quoted as saying, quote, I didn't think anything of it. My entire life, I had grown up learning that men were superior. Mr. Jeffs and his father preached that we must listen to the commands of our fathers and husbands, for these are commands received directly from God. And if we disobey God, we shall perish in hell for eternity. At another point, the following day of her testimony, attorney Amy Friedline asks her to describe her experience in the forced marriage with her half-brother, Michael, that was ultimately facilitated by her father and Warren Jeffs. It's at this point when she begins crying on the stand and states the following. And I want you to read this one. It's a little long, but... It was perhaps the darkest time of my life. I remember feeling as though I was at a funeral, almost as if I was attending my own funeral, and all of the moments that would follow this wedding would be forgotten. I felt like my lungs were struggling to breathe. I felt like nothing. I remember thinking that all the happiness I saw for my future before that moment was being shrouded behind an ideology being pressed forward by my father and Warren. That night I went home and vomit. I felt disgusting and used. I felt like ending it all. I was living a lie within a nightmare that was created by someone who really didn't love me at all. Marianne also testified for the defense where she also detailed years of gruesome, physical, mental, and sexual abuse that her husband Matthew put her through. She also mentioned that it was within God's will for her to endure the pain and grow and learn from it so that she could become a better wife for her husband as God's child. 
They also asked her if she had ever observed a significant relationship forming between Matthew Smith's other wife, Beth Smith, and Marianne's daughter, Andrea. Marianne stated that after Andrea had endured her injury from her father, she found Beth and Andrea in Andrea's room. When she walked into the room, she stated that she overheard Beth explaining to Andrea what life was like for her prior to her coming to Colorado City. Marianne stated that this concerned her because she feared that if any of the men within the community found out what Beth was teaching Andrea, Andrea would be punished to the full extent of the FLDS law. She stated that she did her best to limit the interaction that Andrea and Beth had, but after a while she realized that it was inevitable. In Beth's testimony, she outlined a time in the year 2000 in which Matthew had become physically abusive towards her and pushed her onto her back. She stated that she had begun carrying a pocket knife for self-defense after a string of physical abuse incidents between Matthew and her. Beth stated that she pulled a knife from her hip and actually cut Matthew's left calf as a result. She explained to the jury that this was just one incident of many to follow during her life in Colorado City, Arizona. She stated that she constantly feared for her life and worried that one day Matthew would kill her. She also stated that after speaking with Matthew's daughter, Andrea, she feared that he may also kill her one day, and if not her, one of his other wives or children. Two weeks later, at the pinnacle of the trial against Beth Smith, the prosecuting attorney, Roberta Grimshaw, painted Beth as a woman suffering from severe mental illness because no woman in her right mind would submit herself to such a community where polygamy and rape were condoned. It was at this point when the defense rebuttaled with an explanation stating that these women were groomed from a very young age to accept the behaviors exhibited by these men of power, and if they did not accept them, their lives would be at risk. They had no other choice but to follow orders, or else they would be killed under the FLDS beliefs. On July 9th, 2006, the jury found Beth Smith innocent of the murder of Matthew Smith. As of today's date, Mary Ann resides in a small town outside of Phoenix, Arizona. She is no longer a follower of the FLDS group. Beth and Andrea also no longer belong to the FLDS group. They presently reside somewhere in the state of Oregon. Warren Jeffs is also serving a 10-year-to-life sentence in Utah State Prison after being found guilty of two counts of being an accomplice to rape on September 25, 2007. That was intense. Yeah. <sighs> yes, it was. It's a whole lot of nightmares for us women. It all came full circle at the end, though. Remember when Andrea looked through the window yeah. and she saw her dad clutch her, mm -hmm. his leg? Yep. It was because Beth had sliced his calf. Yeah, it all came together. And then we learned why uh, we learned why Marianne wasn't a big fan of Beth, because... She, she was, knew. Yeah, she was telling her about the outside world. Yeah, it's a depressing story to say the least. So any uh, questions I can answer for you? Matthew had four wives total? Matthew had four wives total, yes. Gotcha. Beth, Marianne, and Brianne, and one other. Hmm. Uh, so now the big moment. Now it's time for you to guess. Now it's time for me to be wrong for the fourth time. Do you think this was true or false? Oh, God. Do you think this was true or unbelievable. This one was very well written. You did a very good job. Thank you. Oh, if I get this wrong, you guys, I, I'm sorry. I am going to 
go with, <laughs> this is so embarrassing. <laughs> I'm going to go with unbelievable. False. Is that your final answer? Yes. Final answer. Final answer. Let's find out. It is unbelievable. It was false? It was false. I made it up. Oh my gosh, yes! Now, there are some elements of this crime. Warren Jeffs is a real person. He is currently in prison, serving 10 years to life in Utah State Prison after being found guilty of two counts of being an accomplice to rape on September 25th, 2007. He he did groom girls. He did rape young girls. Mm -hmm. Marianne, Andrea... Beth, Brianne, Matthew, Michael. All of them. All made up. So that, the, the main flesh of that story oh. was made up. But a lot of like the things we learned in the beginning mm-hmm. about Warren Jeffs, those were real. He really did kick out about 400 men, give their wives to other people. He was a creep. So I just basically took elements. I just learned a lot about Warren Jeffs. I did the A&E documentary, Warren Jeffs colon, The Prophet of Evil. That's a real documentary, and I encourage everyone who was interested in this story to watch that because it is unreal. I want to watch that. Unreal as in it's it's real. Unfortunately, it is completely (laughs) real. And he he still has his church group. He still has his devout people from the FLDS that come to the Utah State Prison. And between the glass, he teaches them. He preaches through the glass. He has church. With them. Like multiple people show up? Do they even allow multiples? Yeah. And in the documentary, you see that. They sing together. They bring new babies that were born to meet the prophet Warren Jeffs. I mean, he brainwashed a lot of these people. But thank God. I mean, in this documentary, The Prophet of Evil, they they interview a lot of these ex-FLDS members, his daughters. It's unreal. People that are currently, like they, they did believe it or? They did and left. Oh, they left at that point. They interview some of his daughters. Were there some of his interviews sons. of people who still are all in? I think there were a few. Yeah, there was. Uh, Warren Jeffs did have a bodyguard, but Got it was not Matthew. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but yeah, a lot of them in the documentary they have the same last name because a lot of them came from Warren Jeffs' DNA because That's- he truly did have. No one knows how many for sure, but he had about eighty wives and over 60 children. And he really does live in a 41 bedroom house in Colorado City. Well, he did. But I don't want to spoil the whole details of this documentary. But yeah, he really did get pulled over. And he got pulled over with all this cash. He was going to strip clubs in Las Vegas. He went on a real binger. And like he was not in Colorado City for quite some time. And he was on the run for quite some time. And another fun fact, when he got put on the FBI's top 10, Osama bin Laden was on the FBI's oh, top wow. 10 at that point. So he was... Damn, he was serious? Yeah. That was some... Wow. So, hope you enjoyed that. That was... Uh, I really struggled to write that one. Like, that was a lot of work. In total, that took about 12 hours. That was a... I Like I said, that was written very well. I, I, I just guessed. Dude, I'm not very good at this game. Well, you got it. I tried to do one where, like, even if you had said... Real, I was going to give you half a point for saying, yes, Warren Jeff's crimes were real at the end. I appreciate that. (laughs) So, yes, I hope you enjoyed that. 
Um, if you enjoyed that, go listen to the previous three episodes. Join us every Monday for more unbelievably true crimes. Follow us on Instagram at unbelievably true crimes. Send us an email with recommendations for case studies at unbelievably true crimes at gmail.com. Our Facebook is www.facebook.com slash unbelievably true crimes. Start a dialogue with us. We want to talk to you guys, get to know you guys, tell your friends about this. We think this is a very unique true crime podcast. There's so many, the, the, the true crime genre within podcasting is so dense. There's so many. And I think this is, I wanted to add a twist and I think it's, it's interesting to, uh, it's fun writing these. Maybe one day there will be a book with all my, all my made up (laughs) stories. Someone's going to hear one of your psycho stories and be like, bam, that's, that's a movie. New, new movie. Yep. HBO show. <laughs> so HBO, if you're listening, hit us up. Um, anything before we end? No, I don't. I've got nothing. You guys just tune in for episode four, which will be next Monday. And tune in every Monday for more incredible case studies. Please review us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Basically what that does is just drives us up the iTunes charts. The more five-star reviews we have, the more reviews we have. It shows them that we have a bigger audience and with bigger audience comes a higher rank on the iTunes chart. It just gets us out to more people. We want a lot of people to listen to this. So again, that goes with telling your friends, family, et cetera, et cetera. Tell your grandma, even tell your great grandma (laughs) if you want. Tell your son as long as he's old enough to hear about these gruesome crimes. Anyway, that's going to do it. Uh, Tune in for episode five next Monday. Join us every Monday. Also, if you want to make up a crime and email it to me, if I read it and go, yes, please, we'll use it. And I'll credit you at the very end because these are exhausting to write. Even even the ones that are real. It takes a long time to put this together. So hope you enjoyed it. Please review us on Apple Podcasts. That is super important. But with that, that's going to do it for episode four. Go watch the Annie documentary, Warren Jeffs. The Prophet of Evil. This has been Unbelievably True Crimes. I'm Ty. And I'm Adri. And in the meantime, trust Trust nobody. Thank you for listening to another case of Unbelievably True Crimes with Ty and Adri. We appreciate your attentiveness and good judgment throughout the hearing. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Also, follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Unbelievably True Crimes. Until next time, court is adjourned. Thank you and good night. I say farewell again to all who qualify for Zion. Farewell.